I, uh, I, I've made a new friend recently, and they're, uh, they're getting into Superman comics and Superman media, and they're like, can you help me on this journey? I was like, oh boy, can I? Um, and, uh, you've come to the right person. And, uh, unfathomably, they decided that rather than, like, watch the Christopher Reeve movie, uh, or even Superman Returns, they were going to start with the Man, Man of Sne- Steel and the Snyder trilogy. Oh. Um, so last Sunday night, we watched uh, the three-hour extended cut of Batman v Superman. So it was the first time I'd watched any of Batman v Superman since 2016 when it came out. And, uh, you know, obviously there's so many things you could... Have you even... Did you even see that movie or did you just rely on the internet to tell you how awful it was? Uh, mostly the latter. I, I've not seen it. I haven't really taken to heart just how awful I've heard it is. But I have heard it's abysmal, and it's on my gotta-watch-someday list to to make my own judgment. That's fine. I mean, it has all sorts of problems uh, that I am not going to uh, defend. But it, what really stuck out to me this time uh, is how much of it can be laid right at the feet of Jesse Eisenberg and whatever the fuck he was deciding to do as Lex Luthor. Because, well... Admittedly, it is a movie about superheroes, and everyone is kind of playing a weird... Ver- like, it's a weird interpretation of Superman, and it's a weird interpretation of Batman. But, like, the whole point of those interpretations is, like, they're extremely grounded. And then you have just fucking Jesse Eisenberg just, you know, literally... And every time he he's in a scene, it, you just, like, you start to cringe because he, nothing. He literally... He can't give a line delivery in, like, a normal way. It is just... Ridiculous. You know, there's a scene in that movie where he's talking to a, a grown man and he randomly picks up a Jolly Rancher and puts it in the man's mouth. And I don't know what, I don't know whose decision that was. I don't, I don't. Yeah, that's, is that supposed to be like a, a power move or something? I, like... That's the only like interpretation, right? Is it some kind of dominance play? But it's just like, you know, it's, why? It's, it's confusing. It, it seems a little horny. and Clancy Brown. Okay. Well, you can kind of see how. Admittedly, those two names are not that close, but actually, now that I know it's Clancy Brown, I don't feel that bad. Anyway, Clancy... Quincy and Clancy are pretty close, but now thinking of the two next to each other, I do want to combine them into one super horrifying, yet musically incredible uh, super artist. But anyway. Clancy? Clancy? Oh, Quancy? Anyway, we can move on. But yeah, the Kurgan is also the voice of Lex Luthor in all of the like animated DC media, and he gives like a stellar performance. Yeah, no, Clancy Brown uh, has such so, so just so just a gravelly, stilly delivery. And then you see him in person, and you're like, oh, I can see why. That's the exact kind of face that sound comes from. Yeah. He's the right height. It's like, oh, yeah, he's, like, also seven feet tall, which makes sense. Yeah. With all that said, that just reminds me that I, I need to watch Pet Cemetery 2, where, where he's in it as a zombie dad. Uh, I think that movie... I hear the movie's very bad, but that he does a great job as zombie dad, so... Well, since we were talking about Superman, and then I used this as an excuse to talk about Pet Cemetery. Uh, the nerdy combination of those two ridiculous things means you're probably listening to the Big Bang Theory Theory. Hi, I'm Nick. Hi, I'm Kyle. And goddamn, if you look at, uh, I will promise I will put down the internet in just a second, but if you look at the list of things that Clancy Brown has been in on IMDb, oh. that dude is a working actor. Prolific, yes. Uh, he pops up everywhere. Always a welcome. You know what? Hey, here's, let's cut to the chase. This is a show where we watch the television show, uh, The Big Bang Theory. We talk about it. Yeah, that's what we do. The real interesting concept, right? Today's episode was Season 6, Episode 5, uh, officially titled The Holographic Excitation. And I'm going to tell you it's a real mess. Let's get to that later. Clancy Brown. <laughs> what a star. Oh, my goodness. Like, I think uh, that the first real strong impression he made on me was in Starship Troopers where I don't know what his official rank was, but he was effectively a drill sergeant. And later on, he accepts uh, a reduction in rank so he can go back to fighting on the front lines against the bugs. 
and that is one of a bajillion uh, intensely radical manly things he's done. Uh, he's just... I don't know why, but I keep thinking he's in Cowboys and Aliens, which is such a stupid movie, and I don't remember if he really was in it or what he would have done. Wait, wait, but, I, I solved the page up. Okay, this is... He we, was we, in Cowboys and Aliens. He was Preacher Meacham. I don't know why that is the strongest association I have with him. Maybe that was the first time I, like, had my own, like, oh, that's Clancy Brown, like, moment in a movie, uh, you know, with him being such a prolific actor, but... I think for me it was too. So first off, he's you know he's the the captain of the guards, it, like he's the big mean scary guard in Shawshank Redemption. Yes, uh, yes. Who nearly who nearly throws uh, Tim Robbins off a roof and later beats up the guy who's uh, molesting him so badly that he'll be two things never happened. They never gave the sisters never gave Andy any trouble, and what's his name never drank or never ate solid food ever again. <laughs> and. <sighs> And also, uh, also, I think he's he plays uh, one of the mysterious others in Lost. And whenever he showed up, it was like, oh, shit just got real. Hmm. Well, I can go on about this for ages, but this is not usually a, a Clancy Brown appreciation podcast. Though, in a way, it always really is, but not, not as explicitly. Uh, we, we should actually talk about what I, what I said was already just a real mess of an episode is how I felt about it. And so I'm going to do our quick summary, and then we'll, we'll, we'll get into the details. But uh, I'm going to have to jump around a little bit over, because this episode doesn't really have any one solid through thread. Instead, it's, it's presented as a Halloween episode, and it is the least Halloween-y of any Halloween-themed episode of popular television I've ever seen. Like, they do end up at a costume party at the end, but it's almost just, like, thrown on just as an excuse to tie some loose ends together, I felt. Well, and presumably because the episode was airing in October. Well, yeah, of course. Like, they, they, they did it for a reason. But it was, yeah, just the most surface-level attention paid to Halloween, which I know is not itself a valid criteria for uh, assessing an episode's quality, uh, unless you're me, in which case this is dog shit. But moving on, Wallowitz is back from space, and uh, he he won't shut the fuck up about it, and everyone is sick of it. Uh, and so they're all at the, the comic book shop, the, the boys, and that's that's kind of your, your plot thread one, is everyone is sick of Wallowitz already. Uh, meanwhile... Stuart says he's planning his annual, I hope this is an excuse to talk to girls, uh, Halloween party. And Raj is like, hey, we're friends now. I'm just going to cover it. I'm, I've, I'm wealthy and I will take care of all of your party needs. And that thread is almost, that's thread two, almost entirely disposed of, except for Raj occasionally uh, offers some theme party menu items that are all really, really bad Halloween puns. And then later on, he's upset that he's not getting all the credit for the party. So that's plot two, over and done with. Moving on to plot three. All the ladies are hanging out. And uh, they're like, hey, we're going to be doing cool stuff. That couples costumes, whatever. And Penny's like, oh, God, I don't want to do it. I don't even know if I like Leonard. Really, I'm just going to be open about how self-centered I am and that he really just exists to meet all my needs. And the other ladies are like, you should actually maybe like him back if you're serious about this relationship. And then on a dime, she decides that she's going to start regularly visiting him at his lab to be interested in his uh, his work and have, have raucous hot lab sex. Uh, plot three, over and done with. Plot four... <laughs> Amy, not satisfied with the level of commitment she's getting from Sheldon, tries to seek a compromise on their couple's costume, which they never actually reach because they go as Raggedy Ann and C-3PO Andy or Raggedy C-3PO or whatever the fuck. Oh, I think that's all the plots. And then there's other stuff that happens. Oh, but then, well, Wallowitz is show. Bernadette's upset. And then they dress as Smurfs together. This is plot 1B. Bernadette's all blue and I'm like what was it something about being all blue what is it is it me I don't know but it's I don't know it's pretty hot and then um 
she finally confronts Wallowitz and is like, you're being a bitch and everyone's sick of it. And he keeps whining and she confronts him again and then they get over it. That's everything. Oh, and then there's a Buzz Aldrin stinger at the end. Um, Or what? Wait, was it? I don't know. It was Buzz Aldrin. Thank you. I'm exhausted. Kyle, do something. Take over. That was too much. So I will say, I do think the if there is a through line in this episode, it's just like the different couples dealing with their coupleness in different ways. So yeah, so Sheldon and Amy, can they compromise on a couple's costume? Leonard and Penny, you know, can they take, can their a relationship continue to evolve? And then uh, Bernadette and Wallowitz, can they get over it? That you're right. That's the weakest one because that's basically just still the aftermath of his astronaut thing. But you know, can I say this? Both sides of that were very relatable to me. So it was relatable to me that if I had a friend who had been to space and would not shut the fuck up about it, I'd let him have that for about two days. Two days, and then after that, I'd be like, you're done. Sorry, you're not allowed to talk about this ever again. I don't care anymore. It's not cool anymore. You can't do it. But also, if I were the one who had been to space, yeah, that's all I'd ever talk about for the rest of my life. That's how I'd introduce myself in every conversation. And I wouldn't care how much other people were tired of it because I got to go to space and they didn't. Yeah, and, and to clarify, what, what Wallowitz is doing in the episode is he's not just talking about his trip to space a lot. He's... Literally every opportunity to speak, he is turning it into an excuse to bring up his space adventure to the point where uh, one of the jokes actually liked in the episode is uh, Sheldon and Leonard, right at the beginning of the episode, in almost a scientific bet, uh, Leonard proposes that uh, Wallowitz is, is doing exactly what I just said. Like, literally any conversation is an excuse to talk about space. It's so uh, Leonard throws in some test dialogue to test the hypothesis. Sheldon uh, does some follow-up dialogue, which doesn't initially pay off, but then wraps right around to space talk, and they give each other a, a secret validation fist bump. And that I really enjoyed, because I was like, that seems like a genuine nerd moment, where the two, two real Dorcases are like, we're both pretty sure that what we're seeing is true. But we do need to validate it. Like, let's just be clear. Uh, and so I thought that was adorable. Um, but as to it being relatable, I I agree to an extent. I think Wallowitz is just... He's too obnoxious, though. Like, I think the issue is it's it's an abuse of the space talk. Because he is, I guess, like I just described, literally every ex- opportunity possible. Like, no, no, it's ridiculous. I'm just saying it's related. It's like I could. How would you? It's like we all want to lead with the most interesting thing about us, and like how would you? I mean, I guess you're right. It's not just that he uh, he introduces himself as, "Hey, I'm Hall- Howard Wallowitz, the astronaut." You're right. It's like everything. It's like you know, bananas. Boy, they don't have bananas on the space station which I was on. Which I get why that would. That's a little bit more frustrating, but also a very nerdy thing. I was at a thing that was not nerd based recently, but there were not a lot of there were a lot of nerds there. Mm-hmm. And do you know how many different times one dude brought up his Magic the Gathering collection oh. in the course of a single? Oh, stop everything! Okay, <laughs> we're having a different conversation. <sighs> Diversion number two for. <laughs> Season six episode and now, five. And now Nick reminisces about his time when he sold Magic the Gathering cards in a shitty comic book shop to monsters. Kyle, I've reminisced enough. I'm not even going to bother reminiscing now. I just want to. I just want to be here to relate, because Kyle. I mean, come on. Am I right? Am I right? I mean, come on, right? Like you were. You just. You brought it up. How long? That game still exists. And they're still doing it. It doesn't cease. It, it didn't come and go like your Yu-Gi-Oh! or your Pokemans. You, in the Lord's year 2022, within the last several weeks, are confronting the issue that I have been haunted by for literally a decade. They do like to talk about it. It is oh. one of those things. Oh. It's just... I don't know. Maybe it's because every one of them is potentially... Uh, a new recruit, you know, who knows how long any of them has really been deep in the MTG culture. How, I don't know how often they're there for uh, Friday Night Magic. 
uh, which is actually a really fun phrase for a thing that I loathe. But I think with my interests, at some point, uh, through <laughs> through trial and mostly error, I learned that a lot of the things I like have no relevance or bearing on other people's lives and are very rarely of any interest. And so that's why I don't I don't tell people about my favorite Mega Man bosses as a way to get into every conversation anymore. Not because I don't love it, but because I I had all in grade school to figure out that that was going nowhere. And so what the fuck is going on with these magic people, I guess is what I'm asking. <laughs> There are a lot of them, and they're legion, and every now and then it must work. I always think of the person who brings up magic like the person who sends dick pics. At some point, it must have worked for them, or they at least know someone it worked for, or they wouldn't keep doing it. Yeah, that's true. It's And it's, it is exactly the same level of invasiveness and awfulness to hear someone bring up Magic the Gathering as for them to send you a picture of their genitals. I think it is 100% an equivalent behavior. Just so we're clear yeah. about how much I hate it. God, if, if someone sent me a pic of their genitals, at least I'd have some idea of what we're talking about, you know? But someone comes up to me and they're like fucking tapping resources and they've got planeswalkers. And I'm like, you know, no. Like, now, I, it, I, do, I just want to acknowledge the elephant in the room. We are giant nerds. We often go off on tangents oh, and can't control ourselves. That's what this whole show is. Yeah, yeah, no. Sir, I'm maintaining self-awareness. Okay, thank you, Kyle. <laughs> just making, just because everybody's going to be like, who are you to judge? And you're right. Who are, well, we're judging. We're yeah. judging anyway. We judge. That's, um, hey, whoever is out there that's following my, my hot stand-up career, forthcoming bit about how I'm frustrated that the NFT market is collapsing because never in my life has it been so clear who I'm supposed to bully. And that's 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 not far removed from what we're doing with these I'm sorry, magic people. Like I I the, 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 I know plenty of friendly fine people that play magic, but yeah, uh keep it in your pants. That's PSA from Nick and Kyle. Oh, I at least have the, you know, I can go on a long tangent about Dungeons and Dragons and we both know it and ha- you have experienced it, but I wait for so I I like inch my I always begin with like an embarrassed sigh. I'm like I'm sorry that I'm about to do this to you, but do you mind? Mm-hmm. Here yeah. we go. Well, you do the same thing when you're talking about you're like let me explain the difference between the diff- the Japanese and the Eng- the Japanese modded with an English translation version of Final Fantasy VI versus the actual NES port of Final Fantasy VI that was originally released in the 90s. Yeah. Here I go. Yeah, it's well, I think and maybe this is maybe this is a flaw we both share, but at this point I'm really taking it as a quality that we both bear uh, a socially appropriate degree of shame for our dark arcane knowledge <laughs> that yeah i do know those differences between the different fan translated <laughs> versions of final fantasy 6 and should you ever need call upon my wisdom i will surely grant your request but know that i bring you down a little bit into my darkness whenever we communicate that you you walk away tainted forever knowing a little bit more about whether the coin flip between edgar and Sabin was truly a fair flip. Oh. Okay, we should probably... I could go off even further on the deep end on this, but we should probably try to bring it back around to the episode. So I'm going to do that now. Um, All right. Please. I did think... You're right that it comes out of nowhere in terms of plot or character development, but I did think the way that they, you know, sort of got rekindled the romance between Leonard and Penny was cute in this episode. Terrible like character pacing and arc but in the just as a standalone bit the nerd shows off like his cool experiment to the hot lady and it kind of gets her going is it was nice yeah it was super cute and i wonder i don't genuinely suspect you know just bullshitting here just kicking the old bean around whether this idea of Penny and Leonard hooking up in the lab isn't something that they've just been looking for an excuse to get into an episode because it feels something that would be very natural to their relationship 
were they in a period where they were in a happy, comfortable, interested in each other, having sexy times period. But the fact is that for this entire season, there has been ambiguity, if not ambivalence, in the relationship. I mean, this season, like, all of, like, half of last season, too. Yeah. Uh, Well, and so that, that, yeah, they do this setup where Penny acknowledges it, and the next scene is shown up at the lab to be like, oh my god, I'm so into you now. And like, well, it's, I I took it slightly. I mean, I'm still. I think you're right that she's still kind of basic. Like the fact that she com- decides that she's going to randomly commit to trying to be a better partner and girlfriend is, you know, just because her friends are like, "Have you considered not being a bitch to your boyfriend?" is a little weird. But um, how I took it was basically uh, she goes to a place where he is at his most confident and therefore his most like sexy and attractive like and and i do think like i think he embodies that in the scene well it's like you know actually i think this is true of nur it's like this is maybe not when they're talking about magic the gathering but like when we're when (laughs) maybe maybe even then let's not rule them all out you freaks but no, when we are, you know, that's when we're talking about something about which we, you know, know a lot and makes us feel smart and, you know, we have some expertise and we're connecting with the other person as opposed to just like doing that thing where we autistically mine every aspect of our psyche for a collection of facts. But when we're talking to another person and actually connecting with them about something that we know a lot about and that we're happy to explore with them, that is usually us at our best, most attractive, you know, most uh, interesting selves. So I think you see that when he's, I mean, when he's, I've just, I thought the bit with like, he's doing this whole thing where he's showing her this holographic, like model system that he set up and explaining how actually it's possible the whole universe, you know, he basically, uh, not he's putting who, on the moves. He was Carl Saganing her, you know, basically like the whole cosmos could just be, you know, a reflection, a canvas on the uni- a, a universal painting of which we are but uh you know specks in the corner of the canvas it's like that's good shit yeah yeah no it was uh i could see how you would sleep with that version of leonard yeah well it it almost seemed out of character character for leonard but not quite i think it was just surprising because i think you know in a way that i've kind of enjoyed leonard has really been pushed to the sidelines for a good while now but in this episode they really did yeah portray him in a positive light and give him a chance to uh really express uh his 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 actual passion in a way that penny was able to appreciate and so that was a positive note like if it felt real weird but uh yeah this was this was a very fuckable lettered let's that's 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 what's happening here we could get into some more details, but I don't know. I got so excited about Clancy Brown and magic that it's it is cute that Wallowitz and Bernadette go as Papa Smurf and Smurfette. Uh, oh, and also this is something that um it's it's a joke that bugged me because it's something that um I someone another podcast I listened to had this complaint about the Smurf movies that they're they're for children but at the same time uh they always insert the word smurf anywhere in sentences for what might not be a kid appropriate word and the biggest example he gave was even in the the marketing for one of the movies it says get smurfed and it's like what does that even mean like does that like i i think the most obvious thing i think of is like like get fucked or something but that's not kid appropriate. What does get smurfed mean? Or like, you know, dance your smurfs off. Like, oh, they're obviously talking about asses. So, you know, it's a, so it's that kind of trying to have it both ways where if you're an adult, you get the double innuendo. If you're a kid or a dum-dum, you're just like, haha, smurf. And I say all of this because there's a line where uh, Wallowitz being so pouty about not being uh, lauded more highly as a space hero doesn't want to go to the Halloween party, but they're already both dressed up as Smurfs, uh, 100% blue body paint. And Bernadette says, uh, it's going to take me months to wash all this paint out of my Smurf. 
and yeah, which is a really lewd sentence. You're right. Yeah, and it's I I I heard it and I was like, no, 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 no. There's no way. There's no way because most most gingerly most uh <laughs> most uh puritanically you you could you could interpret that as a but. And I don't think she's talking about it, but I think she's talking about having to routinely wash away. And she's going to have to do it anyway. And, and well, who knows? Why? Are, how painted are they? Now that I think about it. Why? I didn't even... I was so upset by the sentence, I didn't think about the actual circumstances. What? They, they're totally having weird, totally blue genital sex after this. There's no other reason that you would totally blue paint <laughs> under your clothes. I mean, commitment to your art, I guess. But yes, I get it. Huh. Huh. Those those nasty, nasty freaks. You know, it, it, it would be the obvious conclusion to have made if I wanted to be lewd about it. But for, for God's sakes, that's not where I was for once in my life. And even then, this filthy show dragged me down the mud with blue vagina talk. So anyway, that scene was cute. Um <laughs> Oh, and actually I really did like the uh the stinger to the episode where I really wish this happened sooner in the episode because it would have helped Wallowitz like come to some sort of realization or resolution sooner uh is that I think I don't know Roger Stewart or someone sends them a video uh of video footage of Buzz Aldrin handing out um Halloween treats and every treat he gives out he relates to a, a pun about having gone to the moon and really rubs it in every kid's face. <laughs> and I think the last one is something like, oh, hey, uh, here's a little moon pie for you. That's a place where I once went. What have you ever done? And uh, that is one of the few, I think, uh, celebrity appearances I, I, I've enjoyed on the show. So thank you for that, Big Bang Theory. It's, I, I thought this episode was a mess. I was really upset about the lack of genuine Halloween content, but I, I did like the Buzz Aldrin clip, so hooray. Yes, again, I bet they're... Well, I mean, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they're really like that. Well, I mean... Some I, of them anyway. Apparently Buzz... Uh, not Buzz Aldrin. Uh, who's who's the other... Who's the most famous? Neil Armstrong seemed like he was a quiet weirdo, so he would have probably just like stared uncomfortably at you if you were like, aren't you that guy who walked on the moon? But everybody, uh, I, I might be missing the two up, but I think it's Buzz Aldrin who was once confronted by, I don't know if they were just a jokester or if they were serious, but someone saying that he'd never actually been to the moon and he was caught on camera just socking the guy in the face. Yeah. And this wasn't like decades ago. This is <laughs> old man Aldrin being like, you better not step, motherfucker. Um, and I... Ever since then, not necessarily in a bad way, have always thought of him as like just a real surly old man. And so, yeah, him, him kind of giving the business to these kids. I was like, that's that's the Aldrin I hope exists, who's who's constantly just so shitty about having gone to the moon. <laughs> you know, in a way, that's if Wallowitz had more charisma or swagger, like. He could do what Buzz Aldrin is doing. I think so. The the ultimate conclusion that Wallowitz reaches is he sees the video of Buzz Aldrin and he's like, "Yeah, he does look like a jerk." But man, I don't know. I I was loving it. I think Wallowitz came to the wrong conclusion and is just he's not amping himself up enough. He needs to stop with the the petty pouting when people are saying they're sick of his space trip and start wearing like a full flight suit around to remind everyone that he's ready to go at any second, you know? <sighs> but that's not what happened, so. Different you know, show. Uh, and then, uh, I mean, I feel like we wrapped up all the... So, anything interesting? Like, what, you know what? I will say this for this episode. Uh, Amy and Sheldon, I feel like, are running out of gas as as a bit. Yeah, yeah. It was... Theirs was definitely the least consequential and also least interesting of all the the relationship catch-ups because, yeah, Amy is pretty 
for she's she comes straight out and says it. She's unsatisfied with the level of compromise that she's made for the relationship, and that and that Sheldon hasn't compromised at all. So like, where Penny is kind of like, I love that I get all of this attention without any effort, and then kind of changes. Like Amy has to call Sheldon out about it so they can deal with it, and Sheldon, to his credit, is more than willing, but he's still Sheldon, and so he's not really conceding at all. And so, yeah, they don't really have, well, I don't know. I mean, I guess you could say, like, it, maybe maybe I'm, I'm reading between the lines here that it, you could read that Amy accepts that Sheldon can only budge so far, that that he was even willing to put on the, the Raggedy Andy wig on top of his C-3PO costume. Like, that is going a million miles for Sheldon. But, oh yeah, and it makes her. I mean, I, it seems like I like you're right. In real life, it's an. I feel like it's it would be a bad compromise. Like it's hard to imagine anyone being satisfied. But within the confines of the show, Amy totally accepts it as a worthwhile uh, compromise. Like she seems yeah, totally she's happy. What was there? Oh, the only interesting mo- thing I thought there was that we find out that Amy does not care for Star Wars, which isn't like that big a deal. But I do think it is interesting the way they continue to delineate between different types of nerddom because she is she is like very much like a no, I am a scientist and a professional woman, but I don't go and I like have uh, eccentric interests and scientific facts and ephemera, but I don't care about any of this pop culture shit. I think it's dumb. Yeah, which, you know, I wish they explored that more because she is uh, one of the many varieties of nerds that are out there. And I think one of our criticisms of the show, at least initially that uh, I don't think is any less uh, present than it was. Is this, there's less reason to keep going on and on about it is yeah. All of the main nerds that we started with are your, yeah, just pop culture consumption identity nerds. (laughs) Like, like they, 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 they're nerds in the way that they have to, uh, advertise that they are into everything. They can't just enjoy something. They have to have that enjoyment be their personality. Where, yeah, Amy uh, is like, well, my personality is that I really, really like looking at brains and all of your other dork shit and, you're doing doesn't interest me. <laughs> yeah, I like performing experiments on monkeys that are uh, presumably ethical, but, you know, we're not sure. Yeah, well, and... I, I doubt we'll see this, but it would be nice to see what I think is an underrepresented nerd trope, which is the uh, outdoorsy nerd, which we've got a good healthy dose of in Montana, which are the people who they're not your, you know, camp and hunt and fishing because it's fun to go out and, you know, crack brews with the, the fam or whatever. Uh, but the ones who are like, <laughs> I went on an eight-day trick to look for some special myconids that only exist in this certain climate. I just brought enough food to survive. Very carefully planned out my rations. Like I want, I want one of those kind of nerds to show up at some point. But yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, we'll I think see. Those, you know, those people uh, do I, the Lord's work. You know, they're basically yeah. why you know. That was Charles Darwin was one of those dudes. I mean, it's like they're the, they're the real, they're the ones out there, you know, yeah. discovering medicine and shit. Yeah, this Charles Darwin. It's weird that he gets so much shit from uh, creationists for you know calling into question their whole belief system or whatever. But it's unfortunate that he's not more associated with rugged outdoorsmanship. You know, like. Charles Darwin out there living on the land, hard scrabble life, eating hardtack, and just kind of looking at birds. Like that's, I think there needs to be more um, rugged masculinization of Charles Darwin if we don't want uh, school education to get any more fucked up. That seems like a crazy suggestion, but I'm gonna, I, I, I'm trying to do my part to help. So, I agree. Um. Anywho, any, anything else about this show? No, I think I'm totally done. All right. Well, 
since we have picked all the meat off this carcass, then <laughs> we move on to the part of the show that people actually enjoy, <sighs> which is where we recommend uh, things from the greater nerdy world that we are watching when we're not, or otherwise engaging in when we're not watching The Big Bang Theory. Uh, you know, you might want to try instead of, or in addition to, this this wacky-ass television show. Uh, Kyle, I've got one loaded up, but do you want to go first? Get me. Shall I? Go ahead. All right. So, uh, hey, I've been playing Rogue Legacy 2. Haven't played enough to say anything about it so far. So good. I also started playing Vampire Survivors. I don't know how I feel about it yet. I, uh, yet to be, uh, evaluated. But you know what else I did this week? Uh, I watched for the very first time Eraserhead. <laughs> oh, wow. I've never seen that one. So let, tell me all about it. Kyle, I watched it. Because you want to know what? No one has ever seen that one. <laughs> so few people. And I haven't intentionally avoided it. But way back when I was not even a, a blossoming movie guy. Someone who, like, I, I didn't know shit, you know? And I had friends who were more sophisticated than I. Who were venturing out to the occasional art house film. And... One or more of them had encountered a racer head and been like, oh, brother, like things I saw in that movie that I'm just never going to forget. Like, it's I don't know. I don't know if you should watch it. I didn't enjoy it. It's uh, and now that I am a, a wizened geezer, uh, I think certainly into middle age, but who is is more sophisticated as like now's my time. I've seen Dune three times. I'm ready for a racer head. And uh, those people who warned me away are cowards. <laughs> um, but I can absolutely see why, how someone who hasn't seen a lot of movies would watch a racer head and be like, why was that nightmare put on celluloid? Why? I don't under... It was just horrible images there what just happened what and so i i get it but um i also and this is why i'm recommending it is i i do feel i'm at a place where i'm able to appreciate a movie like this that doesn't have a strong main narrative not that there isn't a narrative but that to the extent it exists it is secondary to just the kind of images and possible meanings being presented. Like, it's, for example, the movie begins with what appears to be a man working a bunch of levers at some gears inside of a planet. Cut to some guy with a crazy hairdo who may or may not be related to the the relate the eraser head title going around having a shitty relationship and finding out he accidentally got his girlfriend pregnant and you want to know what the movie is never going to tell you what those two scenes have to do with each other it's so unless you're willing to just kind of accept that it might mean one thing but it could mean anything it possibly might not mean anything, but trying to like piece together uh, the different images into something, I think, is part of the experience. Either that or it's very straightforward, went over my head, and I sound like an idiot. But um, yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. It's I like I said, it's there there isn't a strong clear narrative, and so I myself was mostly just kind of wondering when or why that the lady in the radiator would start showing up and then was happy when she did but yeah it's something that if you are prepared for that kind of movie uh i do absolutely recommend is as far as it being like particularly upsetting or disturbing mm, old wives tales not not the case it's like it has some upsetting imagery in it sure but it's you know Nothing that you wouldn't see in any other movie that has a, a strange mutant alien baby. You know, what are you, you going to do? So, yeah. Uh, and also, nothing like any of other David Lynch's work I've seen. Stands out uh, 
far and away. So if you've seen most of the rest of his oeuvre, uh, and it wasn't weird enough for you, Eraserhead should should do that. So that's my, my fit. So I'm sure many people have seen this clip. Uh, not from Eraserhead, but you know, one of the funniest David Lynch clips that makes the rounds from time to time is he's being interviewed by someone. And he's like, you know, Eraserhead is really my most spiritual film, and the interviewer gets so excited, he's like, oh, really? Elaborate on that. And he's like, no. Yeah, yeah, no. D- like, I, uh, you know, I feel like a real dork in that I am a not a late in life because I'm not that old, but like a late in pop culture taste development appreciator of David Lynch. Like I, I didn't, I wasn't one of those cool teens that was like, Oh yeah, all his movies are great. But over the last like five or 10 years, uh, and because of things like that, yeah, I'm a big Lynch fan. He just, (laughs) I was watching a Jay Leno interview with him the other day and you know, Jay Leno, awful, what are you going to do about, I can't get a good interview with him to begin with, but yeah, David Lynch, uh, no interest in trying to look like a normal person in front of the audience, like, and no real interest in, in Jay Leno either, but not in any way mean, just like clearly existing on a different level than anyone else in the room, so... Yeah, I think that you know the other. So I don't know the, uh, that much about Eraserhead itself. Uh, I I looked it up because I wanted to see when I didn't realize it was so old. It came out in nineteen seven, so it's basically as old as Star Wars. Like you can imagine, yeah. like which is wild. Um, I was I just always by that too. I just always love putting things in that calendar. The only thing I know about Eraserhead that's kind of fun is that the re- the only reason. Uh, David Lynch ever got any kind of mainstream purchase, or maybe I should say the reason he got mainstream purchase as quickly as he did and was allowed to direct, like, you know, normal feature films is because apparently Mel Brooks, the guy who made Blazing Saddles, oh, saw yeah. a erase, saw head and was like, this guy's a genius. We got to get him into Hollywood. And he was just like, he, he, he got him projects. Uh, Mel Brooks, there's, you know, someday year three years from now there's probably gonna be some sort of documentary about how you were a monster <laughs> but until then ah you continue to surprise and delight that's i did not know that's how a razorhead was funded and that, that mel brooks uh even outside of his uh illustrious comedy career is bringing the hits really ah i love that guy but kyle Kyle, what what is your thing? Let's get to your thing. I don't know. I kind of feel like bringing a knife to an eraser head fight now. Uh-oh. Uh but uh I you know, I don't um Well, you know what? No, I'm not going to So I saw the Chippendale movie. It's 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 uh all right. It's interesting. Oh, wait, is that the the new new thing? Is that I thought oh, I thought it was a series, but just a movie? It's just a movie. Well, tell us about the movie because I can say for sure I love the shit out of the Disney show as a youth. Well, I have bad news for you. It has very little to do with that. Well, I'm done. Never mind. Podcast <laughs> over. <laughs> it's basically it's basically uh and it's basically who framed Roger Rabbit 2.0. It's about what if the actors who played what if Chip and Dale were actors who made the show Chip and Dale Rescue Rangers and now this is them in their 40s or whatever you know both both at the at the nadir of their careers one of them's not even an act one of them's going to conventions like in galaxy quest and the other one doesn't even do that he just works as an insurance adjuster but then they gotta solve a big you know one of the other you know someone is kidnapping all of these cartoon characters and they're the only ones who seem to care enough to try and get to the bottom of it so it's this big weird meta like uh, I mean, again, it's it's cleverly written. It's funny. John Mulaney and uh, who's the Andy Sandberg are the voices of Chip and Dale, and they do a great. Uh, they have great charisma with each other, but it is, an, and there are all sorts of funny jokes and weird sight gags about like all of the different properties that they bring in uh, to the universe. Again, very much like Who Framed Roger Rabbit, uh, but uh, overall, um, it's also like. For me personally, I have a hard time separating my feelings from it for just the fact that the reason all of this stuff is in the movie is because so much of it is already owned by Disney. So it's just like there's a weird 
uh, there's a weird feeling there where you're like, yes, it is clear, cool that Disney is irrelevant about its property. Also kind of fucked up that Disney owns 90% of all pop culture now. And Yeah, uh, that, like, you might be enjoying what you're seeing, but it is right before your eyes becoming the singularity. <laughs> yes. Uh, so that was, but I don't want to, like, I actually liked it probably more than that let on. But that's not going to be my recommendation just because it feels weird to put that in Eraserhead. So I'm going to recommend a nonfiction work uh, that I'm reading basically as part of personal therapy and self-improvement. Uh, that has nothing to do with nerd stuff, but I think is pretty good. It's called uh, Conflict is Not Abuse. Okay. And it is, uh, it's an interesting uh, work written by a, a woman who was active in, like, um... I mean, she's like an author and a playwright, but she she does a lot of interdisciplinary work with like social workers and academics and things like that. And so she wrote this uh, this pretty interesting examination of uh, social dynamics, where basically she argues that uh, that one of the biggest problems that uh, she doesn't even put say progressive spaces, just one of the biggest problems that society has at all levels, both at the level of personal communication but then also as an international level is like this dynamic where one side uh tends to overstate harm and use it to label the other side as uh as a victimizer so that that they can then wildly over um overreact and that basically interactions which need to be framed sort of non-punitively to begin with you know that need to be framed as sort of uh, interactions between t- people trying to, you know, resolve a conflict that's normative and, you know, has multiple sides and iterations and needs, you know, de-escalation and compromise. Like, we have lost the ability to do that because we have been conditioned by, you know, various societal trends, a lot of which have to do with uh, the way in which uh, the American police state and uh, has taken over all aspects of adjudication for personal disputes uh, so that basically now we have difficulty conceiving of problematic or conflicted interactions where one person isn't viewed as an abuser or aggressor. But they argue that actually a lot of times in those interactions, what's actually going on is that one person is trying to communicate that they have needs and the other person is denying them the right uh, to sort of communicate or to come to the table or to negotiate about that need. And yes, that that's uncomfortable to watch, but as, but if one person isn't actually like threatening or enacting physical violence on the other person, then to treat that as a, you know, as a... Uh, an assault. Yeah, an assault is actually, it's dishonest and it's destructive to community. Yeah, well, and so I'm glad that you brought this up because... Um, I think on the one hand, all of that is, is correct. And I think where I, <laughs> I see it a lot just out in the world is I am in and among a very like social justice progressive advocacy kind of larger community. And it very often does feel like, yes, disagreements like always include a abuser and that any interaction is therefore violence and <laughs> and that's like an extreme you know a broadening of a lot of different interactions but uh it it doesn't it resonates um and then also uh i've been thinking about this in a much less direct way uh because of all of my watching we're watching of curb your enthusiasm and the amount of conflict that exists on that show, I was just like, I do need to be better about this. <laughs> like, this should not be an awful thing that I'm avoiding. I just need to accept and maybe be <laughs> maybe be more obnoxious even about it. Yeah, I think that's I mean, that's I think it's fair to say that uh, it's a little bit it's a little bit weird as as people who follow, you know, as a couple of white men to be like, yeah, obviously you just need to be willing to uh you know, lean into conflict, but it particularly, you know, basically you need to be willing to accept that, like, you, if you're part of a community and you care about that community, that letting, you know, uh, letting the community devolve into a state where there is only, um, there's only people accusing each other 
uh, isn't going to be healthy in the long run. And part of the reason why is, you know, it create it doesn't create like basically like one of the main arguments in the in the part of the book that I'm in right now is, you know, sometimes people are being seriously abused, but we don't have the time or the resources net left to uh, adjudicate those situations fairly or correctly or with the right resources because so much of the oxygen is being taken up by bullshit. So it's like, it's like, uh, and not, uh, you know, not surprisingly, a lot of the times the people who are underserved in these kind of say are, you know, the marginalized people, mm-hmm. you know, white people, you know, accusing each other of abuse frame the conversation so that when, you know, marginalized people are actually being abused, nobody, nobody has the resources or the time to give a shit. I think about this a lot and, you know, think about like what's going on with like Johnny Depp and Amber Heard right now. And like, you know, everybody has an opinion on that. Nobody has an opinion on any no- one of a number of other local conflicts that they should yeah probably are more relevant to the communities in which they live well and i think the same thing happens too when like you see someone on on the interwebs who is being held out as like a a caricature of the aggrieved person you know like all, all the memes you can see of the, the the soy boys or angry feminists or whatever uh and i think that does kind of cause yeah a fatigue where when people do have genuine grievances if they're so overexposed to that they're like oh another one of these assholes and then yeah enough attention doesn't get paid because all it's it's all given shorter shrift because you're just so exhausted <laughs> So anyway, the book is uh, is conflict is not abuse. It's a pretty it's a pretty easy read, but it's uh, about three hundred pages. I'm only partway through it right now. But uh, I re- I was going to recommend Chippendale Rescue Rangers, and then Nick recommended Eraserhead, and I felt uh, I felt uh, dumb. You're, you're like I so, need to do something that's more troubling. I need something that's even more directly dealing with trauma. Yeah, I really yeah I really need to lean into you know the problematicness of the discourse now. So let's talk about it. So now I've done that. Remember when we were just talking about Clancy Brown, how much better we had it? Oh, yes. Before we got real. You know, I bet has never mar- has never caused uh, a single problem or has never been toxic in their life is Clancy Brown. I'm 100% sure of it. Like that joke I made about Mel Brooks, can't do it about Clancy Brown. <laughs> in, it just impeccable character, guaranteed. <laughs>